Hello and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Alternative Frequencies. My name is Nadim el and we're joined today by Mona Fawaz, who's a professor of urban studies at the American University of Beirut and one of the research directors at the Beirut Urban Lab. Hi Mona, thank you for taking the time to join us. Hi Nadim, thanks for having me. So can you start by just quickly telling us about yourself and what you've been working on recently? Sure, so I'm a professor of urban studies and planning first. So my interest is the city. My research is about issues of housing, property, population displacements and transformations that result from financialization. Uh, I've particularly focused on Beirut, where uh, my work over the last two, three years has been about documenting these processes and looking at the connections between the developers class, the banking class, and the political class in the country in order to show that rather than supporting a process of post-war reconstruction or eventually urban development, the 20 years since the end of the Civil War have essentially been about hijacking the urban economy and turning the city into sort of an asset where that people can trade a piece to be sold rather than an economic engine. Uh, so that's uh, very much uh, where the blast found me. Uh, and uh, today I'm very invested in trying to make sure that this explosion that happened on August 4 does not turn into yet another opportunity to sell more of the city, but rather to stop what we think was already destroying Beirut before the explosion. Thank you. And exactly as you said, a lot of the issues that we're going to get into today touch very much on the kinds of uh, struggles and issues you raised. Um, so we know that the aftermath of the Beirut explosion has raised various challenges, from relief and aid distribution to the exacerbation of socioeconomic conditions and infrastructural damages. We also know that a majority of houses in affected neighborhoods are either in need of renovation or are completely destroyed or inhabitable. Um, different neighborhoods have incurred different types of damages, and many residents risk displacement today. Um, we're already hearing stories about real estate vultures trying to buy people's properties. Um, tenants are also having their own issues with landlords, especially those who are still paying rent based on the old leasing law. So before we get into all these specifics and more, can you start by helping us make sense of the scale and the nature of the damages and how they may vary by neighborhood? Sure. So. Uh of course, you know Beirut grew around its port. The city did not really begin to expand beyond its 5,000 uh, people until the port began to expand and uh, Beirut became sort of the connection between Mount Lebanon at the time and Europe. Uh, so the residential districts are in close proximity to the port and there's many different kinds of districts that actually very much relate to the history of the city and continue to play in many ways the same roles or uh, different ones uh, in relation to the port. Uh, the first neighborhood I'll talk about is the poorest. It's the quarantine. The quarantine or quarantina in Arabic is uh, the site that had been built by Brahim Basha, who was the Ottoman uh, ruler, in order to let uh, sorry sailors uh, stay 40 days away from the city before they come in. So it was from the beginning sort of the city's backyard where you keep things you don't really want. Eventually. The this district is the district that welcomed thousands of Armenian refugees in 1914, fleeing the threats of the massacres. 
uh, under Ottoman rule. And uh, later, uh, the neighborhood also uh, welcomed Kurds, low-income uh, Lebanese rural migrants, uh, and others. It became the site of one of the biggest massacres in the Civil War, uh, the Black September. Uh, basically, event happened there. And uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, the neighborhood recovered its role as an area that houses within industrial functions and uh, sort of undesirable service functions, uh, also the low-income communities. So it has five clusters of residents who are migrant workers, refugees, and uh, low-income impoverished Lebanese families, some of whom were recently naturalized. Uh, that's the quarantine. So the construction there is of poor quality, and if we want to understand the impact of the blast, their homes crumbled. We're talking about buildings of uh, three to four floors, not necessarily permitted legally, and so not really built with sound structures. Uh, the devastation in this neighborhood is massive because uh, people are very poor, and they uh, not only don't have the financial means to do it, but they're also afraid of coming forward to a lot of the uh, relief agencies, particularly because a lot of uh, the response is police, the army is more and more present. It's already present in the neighborhood before the blast, but now you can feel that it buffers the interaction with the relief. So there the problematic is very complicated because of the vulnerability of the population. And of course, unlike Marim Khail and Jemaize, which we will talk about uh, in a second, these neighborhoods uh, are not on the map of the young activists. So there was a very strong sense of association with Marim Khayel, where many of the young volunteers told me, this is anyway where I live my life. I love to come here at night. So in Carantina, very few people love to live their lives. And so really, this kind of uh, urban uh, destruction requires uh, a specific kind of intervention that prevents the neighborhood from uh, deteriorating, becoming more unsafe, etc. For uh, the central area of the blast, what I call the Marim Khayel Jamaize blast, so if you go back again really quickly to the history without boring you, these are residential neighborhoods that grew from the expansion of, on the one side, uh, Burj Hamboud, actually, the Armenian district, and on the other, downtown. And so they connect in the center in Marim Khayel, which is this mixed architecture of French mandate, late Ottoman period, and more modern structures. They're relatively modest buildings. They're not sort of the very imposing buildings, some of which you can see a little bit in Jemaize, but not, not even there further up in Ashrafiye much more. Uh, they're not very high, in, and they have a lot of architectural character. Now, what's characteristic about this fabric is about half of it, until about six, seven years ago, was held under rent control. And so there you have a problematic more about who's going to maintain the buildings and who's going to be able to recover this fabric in a context where landlords are not necessarily rich, they're impoverished, and they've been the victims of property vultures for many years because of the misunderstanding of, the, uh, of public policy making and also activism, we have to say. So on the one hand, you have the activists saying we need to protect rent control. There's lobbied groups that are supporting this. But what we call as urban is the rent gap, which is the difference between what I can get from demolishing my building or selling it or using it differently, and what I'm getting right now is huge. So I have as a property owner 
all the incentive of the world to actually demolish my building or sell it, get rid of it. And if heritage protection in Lebanon, which has touched many of these buildings, only affects those that don't have enough backing, uh, I'm going to try and sell it to a developer who has more backing and can demolish it. So at the time of the blast within this area, there were about 130 multi-story residential buildings that were completely evacuated from their residents in these districts. Developers had bought them and they were just not using them. They were waiting for the opportunity to destroy and replace them. This is part of what some people may call gentrification. I call it more ab forced abandonment because it's a different uh, process than when you see the second uh, process that was in line in Marim Khal Jamaize, which is pubs and restaurants attracting a richer community of creatives, entrepreneurs, youth uh, who want to live in a happening neighborhood. And so in uh, these areas, uh, what you, what you, this is what we call classically gentrification. It's a displacement of a population to be replaced by a richer one. Uh, my friend, uh, Marike Krainen, has written a lot about how the bars uh, pushed people out of the neighborhood. And um, there, uh, really, what we need to do in these districts is think about how we can stop this trend of forced displacement and abandonment and recover and anchor and I can speak much more about this, this class of creatives. Very briefly, the last district we should absolutely talk about is Beirut's historic core, because it serves as a great example of what should not happen. In 1990, the core was turned into a real estate uh, company under the claim that multiplicity of ownership and the impoverishment of landlords would prevent them from rebuilding. We know it's wrong because we saw the districts surrounding the core actually rebuild 10 times faster than the core. We know that the centralization of the process uh, has led to a severe centralization of wealth and eventually of hijacking the entire city core and the urban economy in the name of uh, a real estate project where very uh, powerful political actors and their bank associates now own the majority of the shares in, these com in the company, most of the land in downtown. And basically, they've turned our historical core, the heart of the city, what's supposed to be its engine, into a safety deposit box that's suspended until something changes in the regional politics and the economy is able to sort of uh, support something like the projects they had in mind. So, Again, there, this is a company that has benefited from enormous public subsidies, exceptions, uh, exemptions from taxation. So we don't deal with it the same way we would deal with the Marim Khail, small owner who only has two floors and wants to recover them mm -hmm. because it's uh, his only source of income. That's really uh, quickly sort of the schemes you have. Uh, yeah, no, that, that was really helpful. And I think we can start by keying in a bit more on gentrification. And you already touched a lot on that. And we know that gentrification is a process that is not only on, on the rise in Lebanon, but all over the world. Um, so could you start by telling us how this like financialization of cities uh, may manifest in the reconstruction of those impacted neighborhoods? And what are some of the mechanisms that are out there that can limit gentrification or reverse that process? Okay, I'm going to try to be brief so that I don't talk on and on about every question. Uh, what we mean by financialization is basically the process through which, due to public incentives and policies, capital comes and gets parked into the built environment. And rather than seeing an apartment or a store be used 
or a piece of land be used to work in it, to live in it, or to play in it, what we see is that this space is basically turned like a safety deposit box. And so it's lifted from the market, it has an important financial value that will eventually be traded against another asset that could be, I don't know, a share in the Cayman Islands or something else, it doesn't matter. So that's what financialization is about. And unlike gentrification that brings in a class that lives in the neighborhood and creates a, 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 a richer economy, an exclusive economy, but yet an economy, mm -hmm. the outcomes of financialization are really the suspension of neighborhoods in very high rates of vacancy. We have seen this happen in many countries around the world. Cities like Barcelona, Paris, London, New York have suffered from these trends for many years. And there are a lot of policies that are now being uh, put in place. One of the main ones we've been advocating from the Beirut Urban Lab is the one that fights vacancy by adding taxation. In cities like Barcelona uh, or Paris, uh, in the last three, four years, taxes on exemptions have been introduced, forcing property uh, owners who leave their apartments empty to pay more taxes than if they had rented them out. Unfortunately, in Lebanon, we have tax exemptions. So actually, if you report your apartment is empty, you do not pay property taxes, you do not pay municipal taxes. So there's a very big incentive for you to just speculate. The cost is zero, and you just keep it empty. This is why we had vacancy rates of uh, around 23% in Marim Khail and Jamaize in the new residential mm -hmm. stock. In the area surrounding the port, the posh high-end buildings that you see overlooking the port, uh, vacancy was about 56%. So these are extremely high vacancy mm. rates for anyone who sort of looks at cities. Um, beyond Marim Khal, are there numbers regarding the vacancy rate in Beirut as a whole? Yes, we've measured basically vacancy in uh, the stock that was built in the post-Civil War era through a full survey of all the buildings. And our results, which are on our website, show that the average for all of Beirut in these buildings is 23%. Wow. So that goes as low as 15%, which is mm. really not low in popular neighborhoods like uh, Tari Ejdide, for example, or Aisha Bakar. And it re peaks in Solidaire uh, districts uh, and around the port, where it's above 50%. Okay, and are there like legal mechanisms to completely ban real estate vultures from going into neighborhoods or? Uh... Urbanization is a process. What you want to do is not prevent someone by creating just a legal block because what you do, especially in a country like Lebanon, is you create a negotiated process where only the uh, powerful, politically backed, can overcome. Mm. And that generates even more inequalities. What you want to do is create urban processes that can generate an inclusive urbanization by uh, creating the proper incentive structures rather than the central bank giving uh, putting all its power behind housing uh, loans and uh, house and exemption and incentives for the banks to invest in real estate by allowing them to lift their reserves for example and putting them in uh, the uh, real estate what we need is the central bank to be providing incentives for small scale entrepreneurs to open stores to create small scale enterprises we need much more incentives for uh, people who own old buildings to restore them uh, and to get financial subsidies in exchange of 
holding a rent for two, three years in only Lebanese pound, giving priority to those who used to live in this neighborhood or work in it. So there are, one can imagine a lot of palettes that mm. can set in place this process of people coming back, living more comfortably, and that can generate a local economy in the neighborhoods, which we really need. I'm in favor of this. I'm not in favor of decisions like what the Minister of Finance recently announced of preventing anyone from selling property. Uh, for two reasons. One, it demonstrates a very poor knowledge of the areas. A lot of owners in these districts have actually left the country. They're absentee owners. Transferring ownership to a small-scale local owner here is actually good for the neighborhoods. Um, the second issue, the second problem is, as I said, because we're going to get the high-heeled ones strong enough, particularly the banks being able to put their money in these districts, while more modest property people who look for, to purchase properties may not be able to do it. So what's going on right now between land, landlords and tenants of apartments or houses that were affected by the explosion? Um, and how can those people be protected, really? Yeah, so we have to think about multiple categories of uh, residents first, mm -hmm. right? You have migrant workers, you have refugees, you have uh, Lebanese. Uh, uh, tenants on old rent control, you have Lebanese tenants on the new rent, you have right. owners, residents who own little shares in a building, mm. and then you have big owners or people who own their apartment. These, this is a whole spectrum of vulnerability, and I sort of went mm. through it from the whole spectrum. The refugees, migrant workers, um, sadly, no one talks about them, right? So when we're talking about all these legal mechanisms and gentrification and the concern about displacement, no one is mentioning the number of buildings in these districts that had migrant workers, including Marmchael Jemaize, and refugee families who were living together in, uh, in the districts, who worked in the districts, who supported them, and who have really very little legal frameworks to protect them. So these individuals, these households, need uh, a regulatory mechanism. I think that it's too hard to deal with it just as a housing issue because the legal framework that organizes the presence of migrant workers in Lebanon, namely the notorious kafala system, means that these individuals cannot see a life project in Lebanon. And because of that, they cannot invest in making a home, and we cannot imagine a process through which they can have adequate housing without uh, the legal framework being first addressed in their presence. So we can give them subsidies, protect them, encourage them to return, but we know they will continue to live in dense uh, residential uh, conditions, in poor residential conditions because they're poorly paid, but also because their life projects are not in the country. Uh, if we move to the Lebanese uh, people, definitely the most vulnerable are the uh, people on old rent control because they are desperate to keep these homes. They're impoverished. If they lose this home, they won't be able to stay in the city. We've seen examples of uh, people who uh, are staying in houses that are structurally unsound, and they would tell you, I'm not leaving. My house is fine because they know if they leave, they're afraid the landlord will demolish the building, they'll lose their home. They have a very tense relationship and it's a relationship that you understand both stakeholders because if you're an impoverished landlord who owns a building uh, that has been um, occupied by someone who pays a minimal amount of money for all the years, you may feel for your tenant, but at the same time, you have to at some point ask yourself, why have I paid the cost of Lebanon's inability to design affordable housing over 60 years on my own? Why does the burden fall on me? 
And that's exactly what the public policy has done. It's sort of pitted landlords and tenants against uh, each other and uh, basically thrown them to courts where judges decide between them for what should be a matter of housing as a right and we deal with it as a framework mm. of rights outside of this particular relation. Of course, the last group I'll talk about, because we can talk a lot about different vulnerabilities, but it's important to realize that spectrum, uh, are the young people who had moved in the neighborhood in the last four or five years and who rent on new contracts, uh, often paying much more than they can afford. Um, they used to pay in dollars because they often take small gigs and make enough money to live well, except when the devaluation happened, their income shrunk. Right. And so since October, these guys have been in severe negotiation with the landlords about whether they pay in Lebanese or in dollars, whether that includes building services or not, how they're going to make ends meet, what's the rate of the dollar to the Lebanese pound, so tons of tensions. Mm. And I'm really afraid because I'm hearing a lot of these people saying, I'm leaving, I'm staying with my parents for a couple of months and I'll find a way to leave this country, I'm staying with friends, I'll manage. Mm. And so here we're at a risk of not only losing a population that was bringing in money to the neighborhood, but also losing a population that was bringing in creativity to the country. So all of these require a municipal authority, yeah. ideally, and a public housing agency to sit together, make a list, and figure out solutions uh, from a housing perspective. Right, and one of those suggested solutions that I'd like your take on is the relocation policy. Uh, because we know that many people have been displaced, some are living with their parents, as you said, others with friends, and we know that any reconstruction plan will take time to be agreed upon and to be implemented. So in the meantime, what needs to be done? Is a relocation policy the way to go, or are there other more suitable options? No, look, there's consensus in the humanitarian community that uh, this whole idea of relocation in dense urban contexts uh, makes very little sense. Um, for one reason, because people need to stay next to their work, so sending them to a rural area and building tents for them doesn't work. Often these become very pricey, and because they become very pricey, they absorb the entire funding that's put aside for recovery. And so rather than shifting immediately to long term, what we do is we end up wasting the money and then we end up where we are. Uh, Haiti is a very good uh, case study if uh, people want to look into what happens uh, in these situations. Uh, my very strong advocacy is for the municipality to make a deal with the developers who have standing, structurally sound buildings in these neighborhoods to restore these buildings and allow people who have lost their homes to move into them and rent them temporarily or permanently. This increases the housing stock in the city and it creates a solution that immediately re-injects economic uh, activity in, and life in the districts. The districts are under army rule now and with the uh, lockdown, I am so afraid that they're going to increasingly become no man's land and this is exactly what property uh, interests want. So if we don't want that, we need to recover life as fast as possible. Okay, and um, moving on to Beirut's urban heritage, uh, which has been under threat and progressively ravaged over the years. Um, even when it is preserved, it's usually for touristic purposes because there are financial gains to be made. So could you speak further about this issue and explain what is a citizen-oriented approach to urban heritage? So I, I always like to say, why do countries save heritage? And the legal justification in the US code is that uh, heritage is important because when kids grow up in a particular place, they have to look at some things and say, this is for us. 
it's not all about me, it's us. And us needs to be anchored in things. And these things are often uh, food, uh, buildings, uh, stairways, passages, the smell of a street. And it's their combination all together that creates heritage. Building standing alone and looking pretty is no heritage. One just has to visit Saifi village to know what Disneyland is and look and just cross the street, go into Jemaize and figure out what heritage is. Uh, it doesn't need an expert, it's lived. Heritage is lived, and that's what we need to preserve for these neighborhoods. Does that mean it's imperative to keep the buildings and prevent them from falling? Yes, colleagues are saying that there's about 110 heritage buildings that are severely threatened. I think about 70 of them will need within at, at most two, three weeks uh, to be buttressed and their roofs be put in place if we don't want to lose them permanently. Uh, this is huge, we should move fast, but at the same time, guys, this is nothing next to what we've lost yearly since the end of the Lebanese Civil War and not during the Civil War by vulture capitalism. So if we want to preserve the heritage of the city, and I certainly believe it, there's only one thing that will save it, is making the city's uh, dwellers, the property owners of these buildings, our allies. Over the last 30 years, we've pitted the owners of the buildings against their heritage very often because we've constructed this heritage as something sacred that you have to keep, that you are not allowed to use, and that you can't, uh, and that I don't protect, I won't help you keep it, but at the same time, you are forced to keep it. So what this does is it gets people trying to sell their property to someone else who will be able to demolish it, and that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Today, my, I urge people not to point any building as this is a heritage building and the rest is okay. The entire neighborhoods are heritage. Once we start saying this is heritage and this is not, we begin the negotiation that will demolish the buildings. If we say the life of the neighborhoods and the residents are a collective heritage, there's ample justification for us to uh, invest as a collective in these buildings because they have meaning for all of us and to encourage their recovery, whether as homes or as public libraries, darly needed community centers. Marm Khal's population has uh, 15% of its residents, according to a survey conducted in 2014, who are over 70 years old. That means that that's three times the national average. Huh? So should we or not have places for these individuals to also, just like the young ones have bars, be able to meet, like public libraries, mm -hmm. like community centers? This heritage can certainly be the place to do things like that. And it's our duty to uh, recover it as a collective shared asset. Um, another issue or project that probably most listeners haven't heard about because it was first introduced in the 1960s is the Fuad Butros Highway. Um, it was supposed to link the Shar Halo Highway to uh, Ashrafiyeh, specifically around the Spinas area, um, cutting through Marim Khail in the process. Ten years ago, the project was brought back to the table by the Beirut municipality, but then urban activists were able to stop the project. Um, what can be done um, today? What are the implications of this project? Is there any chance that it will be brought back to the table? And is there a way to turn this project from something that may be dangerous to an opportunity to build something sustainable and that is inclusive? I think the Fuad uh, Butrus Highway is a beautiful example of how activism can indeed succeed in uh, changing the course of uh, 
of urban affairs, and how also this change is fragile as long as we don't anchor it into permanent solutions where we have the buy-in of public agencies. Um, what happened uh, after the community hearing that led uh, that sort of attracted so many activists who agreed to come to the table at the same time and say no for multiple reasons. So it was a convergence of people who cared about walking and biking with those who cared about buildings, with those who cared about the urban life. This allowed us to all sort of come together from multiple perspectives. And then my colleague, Habib Debes, put together a team to design an alternative. And that alternative is a large pedestrian path where the buildings that have been expropriated, many of them are heritage buildings today severely threatened um, to, to, uh, to keep them as expropriated, but to use them for public functions. So it's not about a real estate speculative investment where you say that we bought them a long time ago and their value has changed, so we have to return them. It's about making them into the necessary urban amenities that Beirut needs. We have a fantastic opportunity today if we think about recovery beyond the individual building to be a shared collective process to implement these kinds of uh, urban visions. So long as we don't get the buy-in of public agencies and other actors, residents, uh, in these uh, projects, there will still be a threat that every mayor who comes will think this is a good project, it's a highly desirable, in part because they're incompetent and ignorant and they think that urban mobility still works with private cars, which is a completely outdated uh, um, concept uh, that they don't buy in, not only because they're corrupt, but also and sadly because they are incompetent and ignorant. And uh, that's very clear. Mm. Uh, but then also uh, because there are interests attached to uh, the car industry, the highway industry, and of course real estate speculation around these uh, roads. So if we can get the buy-in of the residents and the buy-in of a public authority, and if we can begin to set a course for a different kind of city planning, we will finally have a pilot where people can see that indeed urban positive interventions can happen. And this will definitely be a very good thing for the city. So on the issue of this new kind of city planning and urban activism more broadly, uh, I'd like to get your take before we end on the activist scene right now and what role it plays in this whole process of like preventing gentrification, of preserving urban heritage, and all the issues that we've been talking about. Look, I think that uh, politics, uh, and here I'm really thinking with Bruno Latour, and I need to give him credit because it really changed my way of thinking about politics, is about creating the space where people can congregate together and think collectively as a we. This is what real politics is about. It's when I can look in a space and feel that we together want this and we come together because we share that sense of wanting to live in a just, environmentally responsible, socially equitable context. I feel that the urban provides a great opportunity for issues of the sort because they allow us as Lebanese to bypass what has divided us for decades, which is uh, our uh, different social histories, having lived all sorts of occupations in a different way, having fought on different parts of the war, or simply grown up in houses where experiences during the war and its aftermath are radically different. We today share uh, the same dirty air, uh, the same health hazards, and the same lack of opportunity to either imagine our future or imagine our parents aging gracefully or our kids really uh, growing healthy. 
And so that's why the urban is so important, and I think it can serve as a grounds for people to come together. I felt for the first two weeks in the October protests that we were again getting to that mood that we felt for a few months during the Beirut Medinati campaign when uh, people very much coalesced around these ideas. Unfortunately, since then, it seems that most activists have reduced their role to that of opposition. And while opposition is direly needing, and saying what is wrong is important, it sadly is not enough for us to build what we need so that we can move forward. So, so long as we all only agree, and we all do, I think even the lizards in the garden out there agree that uh, we are ruled by the, um, the uh, militiamen who did the civil war and their friends who allied with them in the post-war, and that no one who does war like this will do peace, we still do not agree about who we are and what do we want, not enough. And I think a lot of effort needs to go there so that we can uh, be able to create something realistic. Uh, as an urbanist, I find hope in the urban, um, mm. if not beyond anything, because it allows for some coalitions. And I see it now with the efforts in post-war recovery. I see the competition, but I also see beautiful moments of feeling that together, working side by side, we're doing things. So that gives me a little bit of hope and. Uh, that hopefully others will accumulate on. Yeah, I, I think one of the major silver linings of all the developments since October, despite all of the uh, like the worsening situation that we've been going through, is the sense of uh, repoliticization or politicization that a big bunch of the youth have experienced. Uh, we know all of the like the culture of neoliberalism and its role in uh, depoliticizing a lot of the new generations, uh, the role it had in repressing and suppressing the left, uh, relegating unions to the back. And so in the midst of all of this, there's a huge uh, change that is very clear and that I see all around me in my circles and the new generations that were born after the war. Uh, and despite, if we look at this in, from more of a historical perspective, this change is very new. And a lot of the activists that now meet and work together are very fresh, like these are people who met maybe in 2015 during the garbage crisis or even the 2018 elections, as far back as maybe 2011 or 2012, but not more than that. So when we take this step back, I think that this process of change needs to be also contextualized historically. So hopefully we can build on that and move forward, because I think there is somewhat of a linear trajectory when it comes to the political maturity of the of the like youth activist scene and the urban activist scene as well. So I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yes, I think change is a process, and I think change is accumulation. I certainly see much more engagement with the public mm -hmm. around me, and it certainly gives me uh, a lot of hope. Um, I also still feel a lot of uh, dogmatism and uh, a sense that uh, this is wrong, and so mm -hmm. not, not knowing enough uh, that you need to hear other people's experience and increasingly a lot of polarization in the country that I'm wary of. I feel that it's not one youth that's coalescing, but actually at least uh, three youths mm -hmm. coalescing in three different clusters. And uh, so my hope is that uh, people will realize that their trajectory is only part of the narrative. Um, 
when you take a step back and you see this, uh, you see it with a mixture of hope and fear, frankly. Right. So yeah. it's it's important that we uh, that we remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And on that note, uh, I want to thank you very much, Ma, for taking the time to talk to us during these times uh, on a lot of very pressing and urgent issues, as you said. So hopefully, we can have another episode uh, in a few months, and we'll have some positive developments to talk about uh, for once. Thank you, Nadim, and thank you to the LCPS for always pushing us to be engaged and talk about how and why we should be working. Thank you for your time and your insights. I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back with a new episode very soon. Until then, take care. <laughs>